You're listening to Rambling with Ryu, hosted by Bean, the co-founder of Ryu Paralysis Recovery Center living with a T10 spinal cord injury, and Nancy, a professional kinesiologist specializing in pediatric and adult neurorehabilitation. Welcome to our activity-based therapy series, where we talk to leading clinicians, researchers, and those with lived experience as we explore the realm of neurorecovery. On this podcast, we educate on the lesser-known topics and give practical tips and tricks to help elevate your practice. Today, we're going to be talking about sexuality and disability with Dr. Shanif Esmail, who is the Associate Chair in the Faculty of Rehabilitation in Occupational Therapy at the U of A. Dr. Esmail, thank you so much for being with us, and I'll get you to go ahead and just tell us a little bit more about yourself. Okay, to begin with, just call me Shanif, and I'm the doctor is smiling well, and it makes me sound too fancy. But in terms of background, I'm an occupational therapist and uh, my research and clinical expertise is all in the area of sexuality and disability. But I've been a clinician since almost, well, it's about 30 years now. So I've been a therapist for that long, but at the same time, I'm an academic and my primary focus is teaching in the occupational therapy program. But I also teach human sexuality to the occupational therapy students, to the physical therapy students. I also helped design some of the sexuality components for the medical students. I teach the human sexuality course as a generic course for just a university in human ecology. And also I designed the first postgraduate certificate in sexual health at the University of Alberta. It's a formal government approved certificate program where clinicians, educators, and people with interest in the area of sexual health can take the certificate program. I'm also the vice president for the Alberta Society for the Promotion of Sexual Health, and I'm also the Vice President for the Alberta Council of Professionals for Sexual Health. So when it comes to sexual health, I guess I'm quite involved. Wow, yeah, that's a pretty impressive resume you got there. Mm -hmm. And so what led you into the career path of an OTE, Shanif? All right. I remember when I was in high school, I was playing football, and I ripped up my ankle, and I went to a physio, and I said, gee, that'd be a good profession. So I was thinking of becoming a physical therapist. But I was in Winnipeg and I went to the University of Manitoba for sort of an orientation session on different professions. And I went to the one of physical therapy and right beside it, there was one on occupational therapy. And I went to that session. But before that, in the old days, we didn't have these fancy computer programs and all that kind of thing. But we did have this career inventory that we took. And what the inventory told me was I should become an occupational therapist or a teacher. Mm-hmm. And I didn't even know what an OT was. So I went to this session at the University of Alberta. I said, oh, I'm not Alberta, at the University of Manitoba. I said, boy, that actually sounds quite interesting. So I got an arts degree and then I applied in the OT program, both at the University of Manitoba and at the University of Alberta. And the rest is history. I got into the program here at the U of A and that's how I became an occupational therapist. Cool. So what's your favorite part about being an OT and educator? Well, you know, it's interesting because you ask many people and people, what is an occupational therapist, right? What does an OT do? Mm -hmm. And the thing I like about occupational therapy specifically is it's a profession that works with people. It's basically working with people to help them solve problems that interfere with what they want to do. So what's important to them? So, for example, if you suffered a spinal cord injury, you're not able to do the things that you usually did. For example, whether it's leisure things, being active, doing sports, working out, etc. Or it could be self-care, not being able to dress yourself, feed yourself, going to the bathroom, wiping yourself. All of those kinds of things are basic things that we need to do. And the other part of it is productivity doing things like being able to work, having a productivity role, whether it's at home or making some sort of financial gain or something like that, or making some money. So that's what an OT does. It's just working with people, making things meaningful. Now, as an educator, why did I become an educator? Well, I think I just, it just sort of fell into my lap uh, circumstances while I was doing my master's in OT. And I got an opportunity to do some teaching and I started to do that. But I really enjoy the fact that I can work with students. And I think one of the things that occupational therapists do is take complex life situations and use common sense, or I don't want to say common sense, I want to say reason sense to Mm -hmm. help 
people just be able to function in their daily lives. And I found when I was a university student going through the OT program or doing my arts degree, etc., I found that a lot of professors really complicated things. And I wasn't sure if they were there to show their own knowledge and sort of highlight themselves up on the pedestal, or was it really to teach the students or to help the students learn? So what I find, one of the things I really enjoy is able to take complex things and make it meaningful to the students so that they're able to digest it and say, hey, this is easy. This is common sense stuff, but in actual fact, it's it's more complex, but being able to translate complex information to meaningful everyday information. That's what I really like. Cool. All right. And then what do you feel are the essential qualities in being a good occupational therapist? So from all the students you've come through, what makes them kind of really stand out? You're like, you're going to be a great therapist. Well, it's definitely not the marks. You know, like, you know, you look at university and everybody's worried about marks and stuff like that. And there's some students that I look at and they come in with straight A's or, you know, high marks and they're flying through the program. And I'm thinking, when I have my stroke or I need to have my spinal cord injury or something like that, I don't want them as, you know, I would be concerned. And then there's other students who are, you know, just getting by, but they're just going to be amazing therapists. And I think the big thing is being able to connect with your patients or clients. I try to not use the word patients because patients sort of shows that there's a state of power difference. But -hmm. when you talk about clients, you're working with somebody, you're working in partnership. So I think one of the essential things about being a good OT is developing that partnership with your, your client or patient and working with them. Yeah. No, we agree too. Like it's got to be, I mean, they always say patient centered, but it is really the client's journey, right? It's not yours, it's theirs. And you're coming along to help facilitate whatever they're trying to achieve. Exactly. So you mentioned that your area of clinical and research specialization is sexuality and disability. Why did you choose such a specialized area of practice? Well, it's kind of a funny story. I was a teaching assistant, kind of doing my master's and doing a lot of teaching in the occupational therapy program. And I had nothing to do with sexuality. But I was in my office. It was a shared office. And one of the more veteran professors, her name was Benita Fifield, walked into my office and I was on the phone with the student. I said, oh, have a seat and continue my conversation. And the student was on placement and she was having some difficulties with the client who had an ostomy. And this Mm -hmm. uh, was a woman who had an ostomy and she was really feeling very self-conscious about her body, the fact that she had an ostomy bag and the fact that you know, having sex was very difficult because there was a bag in terms of just not what it looked like, but the smell associated with the ostomy bag and all of those kinds of things. So I was giving suggestions and talking about lingerie and all that kind of stuff. And Benita's listening to all of this, right? And Benita is the one that taught me sexuality when I was a student. And Benita Fifield, she's probably one of the pioneers when it comes to sexual health for people with disabilities. And her husband, Orville, actually had a spinal cord injury. He was had a C4-5 injury. He was quadriplegic. And he and Benita were sexual health counselors. They did a lot of workshops, seminars, etc. Quite groundbreaking things. And uh, I learned a lot from them. And, uh, you know, these are the days, Benita actually, this is, shouldn't be telling you this, but uh, Benita actually married her patient. So, you know, you say that today you can't do that. That's totally against uh, ethics and all of that. But this was like 40 years ago or something like that. And uh, so learned a lot from her. But she was sitting there listening to me. Now, Benita was getting older. Her husband had passed away at this point and she was looking at retiring. And she's listening to me and thinking, hmm, I need somebody to carry on the torch for sexuality. I didn't know that she told me this later. After that, uh, I got off the phone. She looks at me and goes, you seem pretty comfortable with the area of sexuality. I said, yeah, I mean, yeah, it's just just part of whatever. And she goes, would you like to help me teach my course? And, you know, in those days, you're a TA, you're kind of do, you do what you're told, right? So when a professor says, do you want to teach? I said, sure, I'm happy to teach. And I, I love Benina. She was such an excellent instructor and, and things. So I started teaching the sexuality course with her just as a TA, learning a lot. And then what happened was Benita retired. So then I was handed all the sexuality content in the OT department to teach. But at the same time, Benita was asked to teach the human ecology sexuality course. This is about 20 years ago, 20 something years ago. And uh, 
Because she was retired, she didn't want to do a lot, and there was two sections. So then she looked over at me and said, hey, would you teach one section and I'll teach the other? And that's how that happened. So that increased my knowledge and stuff, and I had to build up my own knowledge. And then I had to do my PhD because I only had a master's at the time. So I decided to do my PhD in family studies, which eventually, uh, well, I decided to do my research in the area of impact of disability on couples' sexual relations. So that's how I got into the area of sexuality. Long, drawn-out story. Sorry about that. <laughs> well, that's really interesting. Does the general public equate OT with sexuality? Um, I think when the general public has a sexual problem or issues around sexuality, they always go to their doctor, potentially their nurses, etc. But unfortunately, I honestly don't think that the average healthcare professional actually is comfortable talking about sexuality and all of that. And sexuality is not the province of one healthcare professional. Maybe physicians tend to be the gatekeeper because they're the ones that the general public sees regularly. But when it comes to general rehab, etc., like that, occupational therapy, physical therapy, nursing, social work, all of these professions, psychology, all of them are involved. And a lot of times, the person who brings up the topic of sexuality is not the OTPT speech or whatever. It's actually the person who's most comfortable and has a good relationship. But at the same time, um, I have to say that uh, occupational therapists get more education in the area of sexual health than potentially the other professions. And it depends on very spe uh, specifically to the program that they're being educated in. But for example, at the U of A, we do several hours of sexuality education in various courses, as well as it's a primary topic in another course, uh, while other professions maybe get two hours. For example, I do, I go into the physical therapy class and I do four hours of sexuality. And they do get pelvic floor and things like that, but when it comes to sexual health education. So why is OT the right profession? It's not sort of the general public doesn't know this, but occupational therapists, we work with physical as well as mental health, psychosocial issues, etc. And sex is not just physical. It's not just doing it. It's all about the person, your personality, how you feel about your body, self-image. All of these things come together to form your uh, sexuality. And I think as OTs, we're very holistic. We tend to look at all aspects of an individual, both physical as well as psychosocial. So that's why I think OT is so right for the <laughs> dealing with sexuality. Awesome. And on that note, let's talk about what is sexuality. All right. What is sexuality? Well... I mean, you know, you can talk about sexuality being, you know, I teach the human sexuality course and people say, well, it's all about doing it. Now, I always think, what is doing it? You know, the key thing is uh, we all fall into this reproductive bias. Sexuality should be done with man and woman uh, who are trying to have kids, etc., etc. And healthcare professionals, when they bring up the topic of sexuality, it's with young married heterosexual couples. They don't talk about it. If someone has a spinal cord injury, it's like avoided. They don't talk about it, etc. What is sexuality? Well, I look at it as yes, it's physical expression. But that's one tiny, small component of it. I mean, I've talked to men and women with spinal cord injury who have no sensation in the general region, and yet they enjoy sex very much. And there's a huge aspect of it in terms of their own emotional well-being and all of that. So sexuality is more than physical. So I think about it as being uh, your body image, self-image, uh, the roles that you play, uh, the relationships that you have, you know, how you communicate and interact with people, the clothes that you wear, your personality, and just basically it's who you are as a person. It's your values and belief systems. It's everything. It's all your experiences coming together to create you as an individual person. So that's a complicated way of saying that's what I think sex is. It's not just doing it, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. Good answer. So then, like, why should we talk about it? And, like, what makes it awkward? Okay. Sex is part of who we are, okay? And whether people are sexually active or not doesn't mean they're not sexual. Again, a lot of times people say, well, they don't have the potential of having sex, so why talk about it, right? And the reality is sexuality, our sexual identity is so intertwined with our own general health. And I talk about this uh, quite a lot to my students, and I say that, you know, when you look at sexual health, there's a strong correlation between sexual health, if you have good sexual health, and general perceived how healthy you are. So they did a study where they looked at individuals and they told them to rate themselves in terms of how healthy are they. 
and you know, people will say between a score of let's say zero and ten, how healthy do you feel? And they might say, well, I'm seven or eight. And then they asked, um, okay, how's your sex life? And people really rated that. And then they actually checked how healthy they actually are by doing all the tests and stuff. And what they found was there was a better correlation between people's perceived health. If they thought their health was good, uh, if they thought their sex life was good, they're more likely to perceive their health as being good. And yet they might have been unhealthy. At the same time, if they're quite healthy generally, but they think their sex life is bad, they generally perceive themselves as being unhealthy. So there's a real correlation between how you feel about yourself and sexuality. So we need to talk about it. Now, the other part of your question was, why is it awkward to talk about? I think in North America, we've kind of stigmatized sexuality to, you know, we're very conservative in how we look at sexuality. When I teach my classes, the one thing I try to do is normalize the topic. You know, all the students are coming in and they're thinking, ooh, sexuality, and, you know, what are we going to learn? And they're thinking about all these things, and they have a perspective from, you know, their experiences of watching porn on the internet or what they've heard or what they've read and all that, what they see in the movies. But really, sex is just we're all people and part of being people is we're animals if you really think about it and sexuality is part of our nature and it's part of our natural well-being and what media and all of that have done is actually stigmatize sexuality and then you have people who are taking sexuality and putting all these moral values on it and making it seem like if you do anything that's not procreative and all that kind of stuff then it's being sinful and that has going back to our religious backgrounds and things like that so historically sexuality has been almost demonized instead of being just a normal natural thing that should be a big deal in our society so that's why it's awkward. It's hard to talk about it, how to bring it up, because it's, sex is almost like, especially when you talk, if you talk about, I want to have a baby or that kind of thing, or reproductive, it's almost acceptable. But if I want to have sex for pleasure, that is a problem. I'm going to tell you a story that Benita told me. Um, this was at the Glen Rose Hospital. And what happened was there was a woman with a spinal cord injury, and she was asking about sex. And this was to an occupational therapist. And the occupational therapist brought it up at a, the team conference. And basically, from what I hear from the story from Benita is, um, you know, they're talking about it and, you know, saying that this woman's asking a lot of questions about sex and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And these questions were nothing to do with her. And then I think it was the physician looked up and says, what's the problem? She can still have babies. And at that point, the OT was pissed and said that, hello. You know, you don't have sex just to have babies. It's to have pleasure. It's to be intimate with somebody, to have a relationship, etc. So at that point, I think led to the development of the sexual health unit at the Glen Rose. So that's an old story from about 40 years ago or 35 years ago. But still, I think there's a sense that if you want to talk about sex from a pleasure perspective, it's almost being selfish. Yeah. You know, so anyway. I think like culturally, cultural makes a difference too. Oh, like huge. You know, being East Indian and Sikh as a religion, like we're not even allowed to date. It's arranged marriages. And then nowadays it's not so much arranged, but introduced. But you're not like, you know, I've talked about my parents with this. It's like you're not allowed to date. But then all of a sudden you're supposed to be married and have a healthy marriage <laughs> with no experience. <laughs> you know, it's interesting you uh, say that you're East Indian and all that. I mean, I look at the Asian, whether it's Chinese and Indian. When you look at it from a historical perspective, the most open cultures around sexuality were the Chinese and the Indians. In fact, the first manual on sexuality and uh, sexual pleasure was done by the Chinese, not the Indians. And then the Ch uh, Indians actually had the Kama Sutra. Mm -hmm. And the whole thing, whether it's Chinese or Indian, the idea was that by having sexual pleasure, you're actually getting to a higher plane of existence. So you're moving to this higher sense. So it's transcending to a higher plane. So you want, it's getting closer to God and spirituality and all of that kind of stuff. So you want to have pleasure and you want to make that pleasure last. Mm -hmm. But then, you know what happened? Colonialization came and the British came into India and screwed everything up. Pardon the pun, but they brought in statues and you know, yeah. things around uh, sexuality and stuff. And they were all either destroyed or hidden. And the population was made to feel dirty by thinking that sex is a good thing. So you made a documentary called Sexability. Tell That's us a bit right, yeah. about that. What was the goal with it? And what did you hope to portray with that? 
Okay, first off, I helped with the documentary, but the credit should go to Kelly Filardo. I was teaching a workshop in Corbett Hall at the university, and it was on sex and disability. And then what happened was Kelly was one of the participants at the workshop. And after the workshop, I'd shown some videos. And for those of you who've gone through rehab, there's some really awful, well, not awful, but there's some really dated videos on sex. Uh, there's one called Sexuality Reborn that has spinal cord injury. And then there's another one that has, uh, it's called Choices, and it's looking at various disabilities and sexuality. But they're all really dated. And mm-hmm. Kelly came up to me after the workshop and said, you know, I want to make a video on can men uh, in wheelchairs have sex or can people in wheelchairs have sex? And I said, oh, I said, great idea. So Kelly basically put together a group, Mind Engine uh, Productions, and they've done several documentaries on sexuality. And we basically put together a documentary. We found client educators and people who are interested in being in that video. And the idea was to make it a series. So the idea was to have an 11 part, you know, season, but mm-hmm. we created the first pilot and I guess that's where it started. And I can tell you more about it if you want, but yeah, uh, the, why do we do it? Because again, the idea wasn't to have an educational documentary. It was more around bringing about awareness that, you know, just because you have a disability does not mean you're asexual. And we wanted to make it a normalized sort of topic. And again, just for the general public. So it didn't have a lot of details about disability and its impact, but more people who have disabilities are still sexual, still enjoy sex. And it's just part of everybody's life. Yeah, you're very right. Yeah, so just to follow up to that. So I guess with the, I guess, era and how everything's gone from the start of your career to now, do you think there's been headway made with uh, talking about sexuality to uh, patients like in the acute setting? Well, that's an interesting question. And I'm going to actually take it even further than that. Because I remember when we first started teaching sexuality, remember I said that Benita, my mentor, she taught one section and I taught the other with human ecology students. At the time, it was called family studies. And I remember her telling me this. This was about now, I think back, it was exactly 23 years ago. And she said, this was 23 years ago. She said, I'm more scared now teaching about sex than she was 10, 15 years before that. I said, what are you talking about? Sex is so open. And she goes, no, 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 no. The students today, and she's talking about 20 years ago, so we're looking at the 1990s, right? She Mm -hmm. says the students in 1990s were more conservative than the students from the 70s and 60s and stuff like that. You think about, you know, flower power and all of that kind of stuff. But the reality was, you know, we're moving towards a more conservative nature. And I've been teaching sexuality for now 20 years, and what I've found is everything's at your fingertips, Literally, one of the hardest things about teaching in the classes are, as I'm teaching sex, students are Googling things. I say something, they Google it. They're checking out what the, you know, what's out there in the internet. And the problem is, it's all out there. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, society as a whole, like, I mean, you look at TV and all that, and you hear, you know, lots of sexual innuendo, and it's all available. But at the same time, you look at certain parts of the world, specifically the U.S., and I look at during the Bush administration, forget about Trump, we don't want to talk about that. But before that, during the Bush administration, they moved the conservatives or the Republicans were in power. And what they did was they actually limited the type of research and knowledge that was being produced. And a lot of the education programs and stuff were only funded. It was around abstinence and more of a conservative perspective. Hmm. Also, just generally, a lot of people were feeling out of control because everybody seems to be having sex and there's all these STIs and unplanned pregnancies and all that. You know what? There was lots of STIs and unplanned pregnancies before, but it just wasn't in the media. Now everything's in media, making people scared and making them more conservative. So... You know, things haven't gotten much better. In some ways it has. And I find mm-hmm. that the more higher education, et cetera, individuals have, the more open they are about sexuality. But mm-hmm. again, you do have a conservative, and I'm not talking about just Christian conservative. I'm talking about Islam, Hinduism, all the different religions and cultures, all yeah. of them are trying to become more controlling of what's happening. And part of that is becoming more conservative. So no, things haven't changed. You know, I mean, they have, and yet they haven't. And yeah. things are going you know, 
kind of this pendulum kind of swings back and forth. But I honestly think in the next five to 10 years, we're going to hit another 60s sort of thing where there's a renewal where you're going to get a lot of very liberal attitudes and just freeing of things and stuff like that. I really feel we've been so conservative over the last few years that everything's going to just blow up. Like you look at the whole movement with the Democrats in the U.S., but, you know, Bernie Sanders and all the young people going with, you know, all of those things. But I think there's going to be quite a change. I think there's going to be another Woodstock and flower power and all that happening in the next five, 10 years. Well, hopefully COVID's gone by then because that would be. <laughs> yeah, you can't socially distance and have, uh, you know, sex. <laughs> Thanks for those answers. And then just one kind of follow-up question from that. So we're talking more about the general public and the kind of general attitude towards sex and sexuality. And then from the patient side or client side, do you feel that there's still that innate curiosity and need to understand it? Or are they, are they shying away from it as well and kind of still that taboo subject? Actually, from that perspective, and I tell this to my students, I said, you know what, guys, gals, everybody, when you are open and you know just transparent about sexuality and just being quiet as if not stigmatizing it i'm still quite surprised at how open patients are about you know their own sexuality what's happening and on and on and on because again they want help and when they finally find somebody who's willing and able to help them and not judge them it's like the floodgates open and they just let it all hang out, you might say, and just be very open. So in that case, I found even the most conservative couples or individuals still want help around sexuality, still want to be able to express their sexuality in a healthy way. So no, in terms of patients, as long as they, you know, approach things in a very open, frank, you know, non-judgmental way, Patients or clients are just, they, they eat it up because they, they really want that help and they're not getting it because they get judged by their doctors, they get judged by their families, they get judged by everybody and they just need to have somebody who's willing to work with them. Mm -hmm. So then as a OT or as a clinician, then how do you approach the patient in that non-judgmental way? Like what are some key things that you need to be doing either physically or eye contact? Like what are some things that would help broach the subject? Well, the first thing is rapport building, trust, right? Mm -hmm. I tell my students, you know, you got to bring up the topic of sexuality. You got to first off develop that rapport with them. You got to make sure that they trust you and they're just feeling comfortable. Then what you do is you give them permission, you know, like by throwing in little things about sex. But at the same time, you got to wait for them to bring it up. Because what I've also found with my students sometimes is, especially the OT students, they become overly eager, mm -hmm. right? And they say, "Oh, I learned about sex and it's so important." So they go out there and force their patients. We're going through life changing. Like think about it, a lot of the clients you work with, they went through significant changes. I mean, they suffered a spinal cord injury. This is traumatic. I mean, they've gone through a huge life crisis. And suddenly this young OT is coming and says, oh, sex is so important. And the last blank blank thing you want to deal with is sex. You've got all these other things. You can't even poop for yourself and pee and all that kind of stuff. And the last thing you want to think about is sex. However, once you start dealing with all your rehab needs, then slowly and surely the sexual part of it starts coming up. And, you know, when you're getting ready for discharge or you're in a relationship and suddenly you realize what's going to happen, mm -hmm. then those questions start popping up and you need somebody. So I always say you kind of throw it in there, wait, and then just kind of give little bits of information and just showing that you're open to talking about it. And then I also call it, I have this slide, I call it opening Pandora's box. Because I say, you're going to be sex positive, you're going to bring it up, you're going to have pamphlets and all this other stuff, and then something awful will happen. Well, you'll think something awful happens, and the patient actually asks you about sex, and then you're going, oh my God, what do I do? And then you actually, that's when therapy really starts. That's when you can work with the client and really work with them. So I met you when I was asked to come speak in your class about sexuality and disability. And I was asked by my friend, Vienne, who was supposed to go speak, and then she had double booked herself. And this was in my first year of paralysis. And so I was not comfortable at all to talk about it. And even now, it's still a little awkward for me. But she really begged me as she didn't have anybody else that could go. And so reluctantly, I said yes, because I can't say no to that woman. 
And I ended up at in your classroom and I found it very educational for myself. And I was so glad to see that all of your students were so open and keen to learn. So when did you start bringing individuals with disabilities and lived experience into your OT class? Oh, it's been years. I just find that I can talk till I'm blue in the face, but the reality is students still hold a stigma around sexuality. They still have their own biases and prejudices. And, and no matter what I tell them, they go, yeah, but it's always, oh, I need to help these poor people who have a disability and I need to whatever, blah, 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 right? Mm -hmm. But the reality is when they hear somebody talking about sexuality, being open and frank and discussing how they actually are expressing their sexuality and having a healthy sex life, and just because they have a spinal cord injury or autism or a burn survivor or multiple sclerosis, because my I use a whole panel of individuals in my class. So mm -hmm. it gives them some reality that just because you have a disability does not mean you're asexual. And I think hearing it from individuals' mouths as opposed to me telling them and telling them stories, it's much more powerful. Yeah, for sure. And I think for like the panelists as well, you know, that's where I, we, we met Kelly and a few of the other people on the panel. Like I learned so much about other people with other disabilities and how they interact with their own sexuality. I think that's really great that you do that. And thank you for having me for the last seven years. <laughs> <laughs> well, and what's interesting is I actually prepped the students ahead of time. I said, you know what the worst question is for our panel is the question you ask me after they've left. Yeah. You know, and I've had students come and say, well, can they da-da-da-da? I said, well, why did you ask? So it, it, it's still interesting. But now the students are getting much better because I write in their face and I tell them, you need to ask about arousal, function, bowel and bladder, anything goes, you know, because the panel is, uh, anyway, the individuals I have are now used to it and, and are quite comfortable dealing with or explaining sexuality and what's going on. Yeah, and I think as they, you know, graduate and become professional OTs, I think it's really important for them to have that experience. Whether, I know, all of them won't be able to, like, openly talk about it, but hopefully at least a handful will be. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in our program, we used to have, when Benita was, you know, professor, we used to have a course on human sexuality for all the OT students. And then over the years, the curriculum changed where we made sexuality a module, so it was an elective. Mm -hmm. And what I found was it was a very popular elective, but the students who needed to take it were avoiding it, and the students who didn't take it or took it were the ones that were very comfortable with sexuality. So then I said, no, 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 this is wrong. So yeah. we put it back into the curriculum, so it's a required component of our program because I find that the students who need it most tend to avoid it the most, right? So they're almost force-fed. Mm -hmm. So on that note, how do you feel sexuality, like the curriculum of sexuality, adds to their foundational skills as an OT? It's huge because one of the case studies, uh, as occupational therapists, we look at you know individuals with disabilities and their inability to do different things and we work with them to be able to feed themselves and dress themselves and all that kind of stuff. But at the same time, you know, someone with a disability may have trouble masturbating or having intercourse or whatever. Those are just part of your ADLs and your self-care and also your leisure. So it's just part of who we are. And the interesting thing is a lot of times the students almost feel, well, if I can do this, I can deal with anything. Mm -hmm. You know, before it was almost like they were uncomfortable with dealing with things like menstrual management for women with, with uh, disabilities and bowel and bladder incontinence and catheters and all of those kinds of things, bowel routines. But they're embarrassed about that. But then when they get into all the sex stuff in the bowel and bladder and all that kind of stuff, nah, that's not a problem at all. So it's interesting, right? Mm -hmm. You know, the two things that students are most have the most difficulty asking about with their patients is money, finances, and sex. So sex and money are the two things the students have the most difficulty dealing with with their patients. I think that's just humans in general. Aren't most oh, for marriages, sure. right? Most marriages fail because of financial issues and cheating. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anyways, uh, what direction do you hope to see sexuality and disability go? Hmm. What direction? I think we need more understanding, technology, etc. Unfortunately, mm -hmm. the research in sexual health is limited. 
Because as a professor, if I want to do research in, let's say, sex and disability, mm-hmm. I have to apply for a grant. I put in some money and all that kind of stuff. And if I'm looking at a grant, looking at, okay, I want to understand how to allow women with smile cord injury to have more pleasure during sex. Hmm. And then there's somebody else applying for a grant asking for trying to find a cure for uh, dealing with, I don't know, cell loss during blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. You know, the review committee is saying we only have X amount of dollars. We're going to give it for this because it's going to keep someone alive. Well, this is just going to keep their quality of life better. You know, so getting money around sexuality is, is difficult. So a lot of the research when it comes to sexuality tends to be more case study, anecdotal, those kinds of things, as opposed to good, hard, solid research. And a lot of times, a lot of good research is on sexuality is hidden behind other reasons. For example, there's this huge study done on sexual behaviors of university students, but they had to hide it behind, we're trying to look at STI prevention and HIV prevention and all that. So under that, they threw in questions around sexual behavior and other stuff, you know, where otherwise they wouldn't have got the money to do the research. You know what I mean? So Mm -hmm. unfortunately, there's not enough research. And now, I mean, there is some money being put in by pharmaceutical companies and all that. But again, it's more to find out medications. Like there's a lot of money being put on around. You know how there's a Viagra and Cialis and all that, Mm -hmm. Levitra for, for men in terms of erectile. They're trying to find the same sort of thing for women to allow for arousal disorders for women. But the Viagras and stuff don't work. So right now, pharmaceutical companies are doing a lot, but it's not to make things better for people. It's to make money. Yeah. Right? But, you know, that's the reality, right? But definitely we need more awareness around sex and disability. But I think the biggest thing is just because you have a disability, you're not asexual. And I think it's just an attitudinal shift, you know, saying that everybody should be talking about sex. One of the things that I'm working on right now, or I'm hoping to do next as, as a project is... I want to work on a children's book mm-hmm. looking at helping children with disabilities develop a sexual identity. And the reason I say that is I've done a lot of work around sex education for children or adolescents with disabilities. And one of the things I find when I'm talking to people with disabilities, etc., especially when it's congenital disabilities, mm-hmm. what happens is their sexual identity I mean, we think about our own sexual identities and, you know, where we learn things. We learn things from our parents. We learn things from the internet. We learn things from school. We learn things from what we read. We learn things by, you know, going in the basement where no one's around with our, you know, girlfriend or boyfriend and, you know, going behind the, you know, in in the field and doing things and learning, right? But kids with disabilities don't have the same opportunities. And a lot of times what happens is they're prevented from getting healthy sexual education. So what I'm finding is just the typical person has a hard time with their own sexual identity. I find with people with disabilities tend to have even a harder time. And then you also have the other side where, you know, someone's going along life and then like yourself being, you know, Mm -hmm. you're going along, you have a certain perspective of your own sexual identity and suddenly you're not able to use your legs. You've got a spinal cord injury suddenly your whole self-identity changes and you have to reevaluate what's important and coming to terms with that and really changing who you see yourself as a sexual person. So your sexual identity is, again, had to go through a whole change. So what I want to do is actually start looking at what types of things do we really need, what do parents need to do, service providers, care providers, professionals, educators, what do we need to do to help children with disabilities help them develop a healthy sexual identity so that they can have healthy sexual expression. Yeah, I really like that. I mean, I talk to a lot of the moms of our our little kiddos that come to Ryu, and I just, that's one conversation really stands out to me. It was the mom of one of our little girls. And we have a lot of heart-to-heart moments, and she was kind of crying and grieving kind of the loss of the future that she saw for her child. And I just kind of reassured her and told her that you know your daughter she is going to date she's going to go on to go to dances she's going to go on dates she's going to have a boyfriend she's going to like or a girlfriend whatever right she's going to grow up and have all of these experiences and she kind of the mom kind of looked at me and was like really and I said yeah 
Because if like, if you don't believe she's going to do these things, then she's not going to. So you have to believe that she's still going to, she's still able to have all of these experiences and live the life that, that she wants to live and that you want her to live as well. But it would be great to have some actual resources for parents like this who, you know, don't really have an idea of what their kid's future could look like. Yeah, I'm just in the process of finishing a children's book. Now, it's really strange for a male to do this, but it's on menstrual management. It's called Menstruation and Me. It's for menstrual management for children with special needs, like specifically cognitive disabilities. So autism, FESD, Down syndrome, etc. Because I had to deal with a couple cases where a girl was just hitting puberty. And as soon as she had her period, she was just freaking out because of the blood. And it became three or four or five days of hell in their in their life, right? So I had a couple of students do these projects, their final thesis projects on that. So we decided to put together a book, myself and uh, four occupational therapy students who have now graduated and we're in the final phases. But what we've done with this book is it's got information. Each chapter has a you know, different topic area, but at the end of the chapter, there's activities to do that go along for learning. So we're doing this. I want to do the same thing with identity is you know give information and we talk about sexual identity personal identity orientation roles etc but at the same time what we're adding is at the end of each chapter there'll be sort of activities that go along to help someone look at themselves you know think about who they are and what's important to them and things like that in terms of their own sexual identity so that's kind of but there'll be more focused on people with physical disabilities for this one. Well, I guess it could be physical as well as cognitive. We'll see. Cool. Yeah, that's awesome. I'm glad you're working on stuff like that. It's very much needed in this world. Mm -hmm. So then through all of your research with people with sexuality and disabilities and stuff, what are some key things you've learned over the years? Well, things are changing. I mean, I look at what you're doing at Ryu, you know, and Bean came to me, I don't know how many years ago, telling me about Ryu and her ideas and stuff like that. I was like, Okay, I think it's wonderful, but I'm not sure if it's going to come to fruition because of a lot of barriers and stuff. But some of the uh, ideas around neuro uh, recovery and all of that, I look at our old curriculum. And what I learned as a student is all considered outdated, you know, 30 years ago. And now we're learning more and more about the brain. Mm-hmm. and how it can change. There's neuroplasticity and how there's potential for recovery where in the old days we thought, no way is it going to happen. You just live with your disability and it's kind of a chronic condition. But now there is potential for growth and redevelopment of neurons, et cetera, et cetera. So I think, you know, you look at that and that's just one area, but the brain is such an important part because our whole curriculum in the OT program at the U of A, we redesigned it to have a neuro foundation. So whether you're having a psychiatric condition or a phys med condition, spinal cord, multiple sclerosis, whatever, we all start with the brain and the spinal cord. And then we go from there because everything starts with that. So lots of potential. I think there could be some real gains in the area of sensation and pleasure, right? So, you you know, there's one thing about motor control, but there's also sensory uh, inputs and stuff like that. And I think there that might be the... Even before motor control, we might even find some things that are unsensory and maybe that could bring in the whole thing of uh, pleasure and orgasms and all that kind of stuff. So anyway, there's lots of really neat things happening. Yeah, it's exciting to hear. Mm-hmm. Okay, do you have any advice for future occupational therapists who will be working with people with spinal cord injury? Well, I think the first thing is accept that everybody's sexual and just because you're a client is got a spinal cord injury doesn't mean that sex is not something on their mind and a lot of times it's male clients who you know are quite you know because young male spinal cord you know a lot of times you can be quite crude and you know in terms of talking about sex but the reality is also women and just anybody you know sexuality should be something that should be part of the intervention process and it should be brought up early but at the same time with some sensitivity so that uh, you know, you're not forcing the individual when they're not ready. But I think realizing that if you work with somebody with a spinal cord injury, you know, just because they can't feel an orgasm doesn't mean they don't experience maybe a cognitive orgasm or release or just satisfaction from being sexual or having sexual intimacy. 
I think that's the biggest one. I remember that video of sexability. I showed it to my wife and all of these of uh, my friends who are not healthcare professionals or anything like that. And they, the first thing that out of their mind was, why bother? The women were talking, why bother? If you can't feel it, why even do it? And that kind of stuff. And it's still this attitudinal change that we need to have. Yeah. For sure, because like you've been saying, it's more than just about the physical act of sex. It's the intimacy, it's the pleasure, it's, and you can find that in all aspects of your life. But I think, yeah, like you said before, people just equate it down to that, just the act of doing sex. Yep. Can he have an erection? Can he stick it in? But, you know, but he can't feel it, so why bother? Like, really? Yeah. Cool. So where do you see yourself in five years? Well, you know... My career, I started off, uh, when it comes to sex and disability, mm -hmm. it started off with the impact of disability on couples' sexual relations. So I looked at more from a phys med perspective in terms of what happens to a couple, what happens to the partner, and how do we approach it. And then I started to do more around sex education. And the initial part of it was I kind of did a literature search and all that, and I found that there was lots of programs for people with cognitive disabilities, so autism, FESD, and stuff like that, but these programs were there to control behavior. But there was nothing, nothing. Like, I mean, yes, there was uh, information on spinal cord injury and what happens at different levels and all that kind of stuff. But when it came to healthy sexual expression and sex education, there's really nothing for physical disabilities. And I always think about why wasn't there? But what happens if, if you have an adolescent who has a physical disability, Mm -hmm. They are fully understanding of what's going on, right? But they realize that they don't have the same opportunities as their friends, so they don't bring it up. And what we've also found is friends of people with disabilities also tend to avoid the topic of sexuality when their friends are around because they don't want to bring it up because, oh, they, can't, they don't have that potential, so let, let's not talk about it. So bottom line is when it comes to sex education, that's why I focus a lot of my initial work on physical disabilities. So I looked at burn survivors, cerebral palsy, spinal cord injury, multiple sclerosis, and hearing, as well as visual impairments. Then I said, well, what's going on with people with cognitive disabilities? And I was getting a lot of calls from clinicians and educators saying, you know, we had this kid who's doing inappropriate sexual behaviors at school, and we need this, and we need that. So now I've been focusing a lot around the whole aspect of people with cognitive disabilities and trying to get those individuals with, or, and also head injuries, right? You know, allowing for healthy expression for those. So my career, I'm hoping to hopefully retire in the next five or 10 years, but uh, what I'd like to see is I'd like to focus in more on the whole aspect of consent and healthy expression. Yeah, I am focusing more, a little bit more on, on the cognitive aspects because I'm finding that population is really underserved, but also in a lot of times they're very controlled. And the main thing is controlling behavior because they're doing things that they don't have insight into. And suddenly it's embarrassing to them or the public and they have, so they, we need to control their behavior. So uh, that's where I'm kind of leaning towards a little bit in the next little while. Wow, that's really interesting. Do you see people one-on-one? -on -one? Like, do you have clients? In terms of seeing clients, I am really busy. So what I do do is, for example, if somebody, uh, like I will not see anybody who does not have a disability. And then what I'll do is individuals with disabilities, what I'll do is I'll meet with them once. I do not charge them. I just do it as a free service sort of thing. But what I do is I listen and I find out what would they benefit from. Okay. But I have one caveat with that. I usually say on one condition, I'll meet with you, I'll talk to you, but I'd like to have one or two students with me. Yeah. So then I invite a student or two so they can learn from the experience. Then what happens is I refer them. Unfortunately, and this is the reality is, Unfortunately, there's not a lot of people doing a lot of work in the area of sexuality and disability. Yeah. There's some people like psychologists and healthcare professionals that, you know, from the Alberta Council of Professionals of Sexual Health. But mm -hmm. unfortunately, there's, there's not enough out there. Now, what I'm hoping to do is when I do tend to semi-retire is I will start sort of doing more consulting and seeing more people separately. But again, it will focus primarily on individuals with disabilities. But in terms of services, ah, that's hard because 
you know, there's not a lot of people doing things. Well, maybe that's the gap in the system that needs to be. Oh, it's a huge gap, you know, but there's also that other part of it. See, I'm buffered by the university because a lot of my work, because I hook it up to students and stuff like that, I use university time to do service. I, and as, as a professor, we expect you to do research, yeah. teaching, and service. And service can be in any form. So I actually report that I saw, you know, a few people with disabilities and I gave them, you know, services, but, you know, I did charge for it, et cetera. Or, you know, in, in rare cases, I have charged when someone has required something and they're quite desperate and, you know, that kind of thing. But anyway, hmm, cool. maybe you can start a service with Ryu and we can get you some professionals to work with you guys. I mean, you never know. We actually did just hire our first OT this week. Oh, wonderful. Yeah, we're uh, expanding our team to be multidisciplinary. Well, get her to take care of the sex stuff. You should start a little, you know, workshops or seminars on sex. That'll be good. Yeah, we'll talk about that because, I mean, we have been filling most of the gaps that we see in all of the systems around us, right? And so this is a big one. And we've we already openly talk about sexuality with disability. And we had a sex talk that you came to when we first opened Ryu in 2017, and that was actually quite successful. And so we know that it's important to talk about this stuff. And we're just really grateful that you are so knowledgeable and so open with all of your knowledge and open to talking about it. Well, thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> Is there anything else that you wanted to add? No, but thank you for having me. You know, when you uh, texted me and said, can I do that? I go, whoa. <laughs> but anyway, that's good. I'm glad we got it done. Yeah, me too. This is something like, yeah, we've wanted to have you on the podcast for a while and we're really grateful that you said yes. So yeah, thank you for sharing your time and your knowledge with us. You're welcome. And thank you to our listeners for joining us. We hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. As always, we would greatly appreciate if you could subscribe, leave us a five-star review and a comment on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts as this helps us increase our reach. And stay tuned for another episode coming at you in two weeks.